Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Bernbaum. I've noticed lately that a lot of people I have talked to have this nagging feeling that they're missing something because they don't have any Bitcoin, but they don't know what to do or where to start. Well, Swan Bitcoin is the best way to acquire Bitcoin for most people. It's easy. You go to swanbitcoin.com slash init, and in less than five minutes, you can set it up to automatically buy Bitcoin daily, weekly, or monthly in any amount. Isn't Bitcoin expensive? Well, that's like saying a million dollar brokerage account is expensive. Yeah, it's a million dollars, but you don't actually have to have that much. You can buy smaller amounts. Bitcoin can be divided. It's digital. So you know how you have a hundred cents in a dollar? Well, you have a hundred million sats in a Bitcoin. A piece of a Bitcoin is called a sat. It's a hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. Today, a sat is worth a tiny fraction of a US dollar, so you really don't have to buy very much to start buying Bitcoin. But nobody can just make more sats or more Bitcoin just because they choose to or they think that there aren't enough. It's all algorithmic. There's literally nobody in charge, which means when you buy sats, you can't be diluted, you can't be inflated. For people used to fiat currencies, it's hard to wrap your head around, but once you get started, there's no going back. Go to swanbitcoin.com slash init and set it up in less than five minutes. Dame Evelyn Glennie is a world-leading solo percussionist. A double Grammy Award winner and BAFTA nominee, Evelyn has released over 40 studio and concert albums and also composes for film, theater, and television. Evelyn is currently forming the Evelyn Glennie Collection with a vision to open a center that embodies her mission to teach the world to listen. Topics of the episode include providing support to musicians who are hard of hearing or face other challenges, as Ms. Glennie herself is in fact hard of hearing. And recently, she's helped lead a project to assist an Olympian competing in Tokyo, who is a dressage athlete named Laurentia Tan. And she uses a vest called a subpack, which some of you may have heard of. It has tactile stimulators all over it, and it's designed to display sound to the skin. Evelyn worked with a composer to create a musical score that would allow Ms. Tan to perform at the Olympics. So we talk about that and a few of the other interesting projects that Evelyn has worked on in her career. So here we go, Evelyn Glennie. Hey, Evelyn, how are you doing? Hi, David. I'm good, thank you, and you? Good, thanks. The image is is just slightly, slightly, um, just freezing now and again, I will say. Uh, yeah, I noticed that too. Um, we don't record video, so it shouldn't be a problem for yes. for that. But if it continues and if it interferes with audio, maybe we'll just turn off our videos in order to reduce the bandwidth. David, I need to see you in order to, to communicate. Oh, so right, right. Um, that's what's important. So whatever happens, I we need to keep going. There's no point in doing it audio only. Got it. Well, thank you for being here. And I just have to say, I'm really amazed and excited that you're here. When I was in school, you're somebody who I studied and sort of looked up to. And you were part of the reason that I chose the career that I did. So it's Evelyn Glennie speaking to little old me. So thank you. I really appreciate this. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Pleasure. All right. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your career? Well, I'm basically a farmer's daughter. I was brought up in the northeast of Scotland, and so the farm was really my orchestra. 
I was brought up with Scottish traditional music and then gradually got into more formal music making and reading music and that type of thing. Um, however, improvisation has always been a key part to my overall journey. I left school when I was 16 years old and went to the Royal Academy of Music in London In at that age. I graduated when I was 19. And uh, and then I started earning my bread and butter as a solo percussion player. And when I decided to, to be a full-time musician, once that decision had been made at the age of 15, the goal was simply to be a full-time solo percussion player. And of course, I realized that that did not exist at the time. So a large part of my growth has been commissioning pieces from composers all over the world to make sure that there's enough repertoire to sustain a career as a soloist and to make sure that the future generations do not have the the hurdles and actually, you know, wondering what to play. They can immediately get going with their careers. And also, people don't have to question whether it's possible to be a solo percussion player because, of course, it's already been done. So all of those things have been important as regards to making sure there's some kind of legacy that is sustainable. And so once I realized that it was possible to sustain that career, that basically allowed me to open up opportunities for different types of collaborations, not just with other musicians, but other creative forces, and do other types of projects that were not only based on solo percussion. And so that meant that I could delve into media writing myself as a composer and writing for films and television, radio, that type of thing but also explore the huge collection of instruments that has been built up over a course of of years and years. And we're just under 3,000 instruments now. And in fact, just two days ago, I finished putting the last instrument onto the database. So, and this is all part of the Evelyn Glennie collection. And so this will, in years to come, be available to the general public. That's, you know, a very brief synopsis of, of the journey. The database is a place that you can find instruments. Is that what data is in the database of these instruments? The database will be available to the public. It's not yet available because we want the whole collection to be part of that database. And that includes concert programs, photographs, clothes, audiovisuals, includes certain correspondence, press cuttings, instruments, music scores, you name it. So it's a massive, massive task. And over the past five years, we've had up to four volunteers who come in twice a week and they have just done an extraordinary job. It's been my task to do the instruments because it makes sense for that to be the case. And so in a way, the instruments is just one part of the wheel in the whole collection. So once we have everything up on the database, that will then be ready for the public. I have to say, we have to backtrack a little bit into earlier life. So I'm a huge fan of this movie that you made in 2004. Well, I guess you probably made it in 2003, Touch the Sound. It's about you with some other musicians. And it is an extraordinary film because the camera work, the shots are like capturing the body movements of these musicians and not only the instrumental gestures, not only the things you're doing to to make the instruments make sound, but there's even this moment kind of towards the end where the camera's looking at your toes and it just shows how your toes are just so slightly curling 
as you play this instrument. And it just gives you the sense of how a musician's entire body is totally involved with creating music and how music is really just this artifact of body movement. It's extraordinary. Anyway, I know it's an older project, but if you could just indulge me for a few minutes and tell me like, what was the experience of making that film? And do you have any stories about that film? Well, basically when I was approached to uh, think about participating, Thomas Riedelsheimer, the filmmaker and director, he said that he wanted to make a film about sound. And at first I declined because I said, I'm absolutely not interested in having yet another film about me and my hearing situation and all of that kind of thing. And he said, no, 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 this isn't a film about that. This is a film about sound. And so, you know, I became more intrigued and Thomas is just such an extraordinary man. I then saw some of his other film work, which he did, like the visual artist Andy Goldsworthy, and I was absolutely enthralled, and I felt that this was definitely going to be a unique project. And so actually, the film does not include a single concert. These were not concerts at all. These were all completely improvised encounters. We had never met the people before, Mm. so this was the first time that all of these exchanges had happened. And even the collaboration with Fred Frith, that was the first time I'd met Fred. Really? Oh, wow. And we were improvising in a derelict sugar factory in Germany. And I said to Thomas, what is plan B if Fred and I don't get on? And uh, because, you know, you can have two musicians, but if the chemistry isn't right, then, you know, no matter how amazing a particular musician might be, in Fred's case, that, that's definitely the case, the chemistry has to be right. Mm-hmm. And uh, however, Thomas said, well, there is no plan B and I'm sure you'll get on fine. And that was definitely the case. And so it was just an extraordinary journey. It took about three years to make because what had happened was that Thomas needed to almost work around my schedule. And that sounds very selfish, but actually I was just traveling all over the world. And of course, he was on a budget. He had a very small crew. He did a lot of the camera work himself. He said that the most important person in the film was a sound person. And I totally agree with that. Mm. So it was absolutely crucial that they that he, you know, had and was working with the very best that he could find for this particular project. Yeah, I mean, it was the filming just happened, you know, during different periods of the course of three years. And then, of course, Thomas put it all together. We liaised constantly throughout the process. Mm. And I was really happy with the result because I felt that it's a slow moving art house film Mm -hmm. and it has to be shown in a situation whereby the the sound is really the most important element. Mm -hmm. So if that isn't right, then you lose the essence of the film. Mm -hmm. So really that was it. And basically I've seen a few showings of it in cinemas and even now after 20 odd years or however long that you know, I still feel that, wow, there's a lesson in there for us all. You know, we can all connect with sound. And as we've experienced the past 18 months with the global pandemic, this has been absolutely magnified and apparent where we've really connected with what's right on our doorstep in a way, what's right under our our, our noses. And, and I think our senses have become particularly heightened. Yeah, that's interesting. Part of your career is you do a lot of film scoring and composing for media, right? I saw on your IMDb, you've done a lot of short films and 
TV episodes. How much of your work is actually focused on film scoring? And also, do you have any other projects where you're getting back in front of the camera? Well, you know, these days projects come and, and, you know, you decide whether you want to do them or not or whatever feels right at the particular time. You know, I enjoy the composing, but I enjoy it because it's interspersed with other things. For the first 20, 25 years of my career, it was so focused and driven by solo percussion Mm. in order to make a dent in that field. And now that that has been able to fly, it's allowed me to then explore other avenues. So I think I'm more of the kind whereby if something, if a project comes in and it really grabs my interest, um, then I'll, you know, gladly embrace it. Mm-hmm. So I don't really divide my time in any kind of way. I don't think, oh, for six months I'll propose and six months I'll perform. Mm. That doesn't really suit the way I am. So it's hard to really say what the dynamics are, but I just like the variety of the projects that come in, really. Um, But I I think when you mention, am I in front of the camera at any time soon? I think we're all in front of a camera nowadays, (laughs) to be honest. Exactly. And, And it's kind of difficult to now determine what the feeling, the difference in feel is, to be perfectly honest, because everything we do is is either videoed, recorded, and one thing or another. Because when you made a recording, it was such an incredible skill to know how to negotiate a a microphone. And uh, you became a very different performer in a studio, you know, making love to a microphone at the end of the day, and then how to transmit that to a global audience, not just the number of people who might come to a concert. Mm. Um, But nowadays, you know, with all of the platforms that we have and with the different kind of levels of recording and performing, you know, performing in your living room, performing outside, performing on a concert stage, you know, it's, it's a different sort of mental dynamic as to what goes on, I think. And I think it's sort of re-evaluated what what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and what we want to engage with, and and what sort of level of things we want to ultimately put out there. And I I feel in in my own case, you know, for the past 18 months since uh, COVID-19, that it's it's really made me question a lot of things, and mm. you know I'm I'm more ready to uh, perhaps let something go than just do it for the sake of being seen to do it, but not get the level that I'm really been striving to striving for. I think mm. so, like being more selective about when you go and do a formal recording, and making sure that everything's in place and it's going to turn out to be something that you can stand behind? Is that kind of what you mean? I, I think so, yes, absolutely. And that it's given the time and focus that it's due. I mean, we've seen that cut back a bit because of budgets and one thing or another, and not because of COVID. But obviously with, with COVID, it's absolutely completely turned everything, and not just our industry, but so, so many people's lives upside down. But now and again, we do need a shake-up And I always feel that even with with something that is so challenging, as we've experienced, you know, on a global scale, you know, there's a yin and yang to everything and and fruit will grow from that. You know, there's always positives, but nothing's going to be the same. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm curious just because this podcast is so much about technology and we often talk about assistive technologies. I'm curious, like it's clear that your perception of movement and vibration is a huge part of how you're able to perform, but are there any assistive technologies? And we'll get into Subpack later when we talk about that project, but you personally, is there anything that you have used? I'm just very curious, like what's your process for, for, for that? Well, there's there's no real process as such because each thing is a separate, mm-hmm. you know, situation because every environment is different. The instruments I'm playing might be different. The repertoire might be different. The collaborations may be different. The acoustics are different and so on. So, you know, one fit doesn't do all. Mm-hmm. If I'm playing with my pianist, for example, whom I've worked with for many, many years, there's that chemistry there. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely crucial. And that goes a long, long way to making a collaboration work. Mm. And we just position ourselves so that we can see each other. Mm. So I can see a lot of his body movement. I can see some of the keyboard, but we know each other so well. And I use in-ear monitors Mm. uh, when I work with piano. And likewise, I use in-ear monitors if I'm working, for example, there's a, a jazz trio I work with, and where the time signatures are just so odd. I mean, every single bar is different. And it's a kind of jazz setting whereby a lot of it is written down. It's kind of orchestrated between the four of us. And likewise, there are improvised sections too. So it's absolutely crucial, even if they were just playing by themselves, that they would use a click track Mm -hmm. as well. So the click track is at a frequency that I pick up and at a volume also that's pretty high. Usually the sound engineers are pretty astonished that anybody could bear that sort of level for two hours but that's what's needed and you know the sound engineers are so crucial to the whole equation they they are very much part of the performance and so they have to kind of understand how you relate to the frequencies which frequencies work well towards your body and so on and so forth but all the time the the visual aspect is absolutely crucial when I'm working with other musicians I have tried various implements that are attached to the body that provides vibration. However, I haven't come across anything yet that actually gives a realistic feel of what you would feel if you don't have those, you know, mechanisms. So, for example, if I'm feeling a low vibration from, let's say, a bass drum or from a timpani or something, it will naturally feed through the lower part of my body. And so, therefore, for me to feel it on my neck is simply not, you know, it it makes not a lot of sense to me and this can affect your balance and your coordination Mm -hmm. Um, or if suddenly I feel a very high sound you know on my hips or something that is so out of proportion to what it realistically to what realistically happens when you're right next to an instrument so if I'm playing a glockenspiel or triangles or the high end of a vibraphone or something I will naturally feel those in the upper part of my body so unless my feet are actually touching a pedal on those instruments, then I might feel something through my feet. But otherwise, it's not going to be that area mm-hmm. of the body that's going to feel it. So the mechanisms slightly confuse things for me. So if I'm wearing a wrist mechanism mm-hmm. or I'm sitting on a bass drum stool, 
and I'm only feeling things through my bottom, that isn't realistic. Or if I'm suddenly trying to decipher layers of sound and I'm feeling it through my back, that's not very helpful because that isn't how sound works naturally with the body. Yeah. Have you ever tried some technology that would give you a sense of metadata? So like, for example, a metronome sensation or a sensation that lets you know when a piece is transitioning from one section to another. Is that at all useful to you or or not at all? Well, it's only useful in a click track situation. Mm-hmm. It's not useful to me in a live performance if it's detached from the musicians because you want to have that kind of chemistry uh, and that sort of listening flexibility as it were so that each person can really begin to live with that sound rather than have a conductor through a mechanism and be rigid to that so for example if I'm playing pieces with tape uh, audio tape I know that there's very little flexibility with that. There is going to be a certain, you know, tempo or certain things are going to happen and you cannot change that. And yes, you can be flexible as regards to certain parts of the interpretation within this structure. Mm-hmm. But it's not allowing you to be completely and utterly where you decide, oh, I'm just going to feed off the audience there and delay on that a little bit. Or, oh, you know, I feel as though the audience is getting excited there, so I'm just actually going to milk this up and add four more bars or something. You don't have that opportunity. So the, the engagement with the audience is is different because you you simply do not have that kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I'm all for technology and I'm all for really seeing where the place is. But I think that we can also really stretch and give ourselves time uh, in order to, you, you know, really work with the acoustics of the place, work with the people we're collaborating with. Yeah. I'm curious because this is your community Do you have a sense that your perspective that you just shared is widely shared or do different musicians who have these needs have totally different perspectives? Like, I'm just trying to get a sense, like, is the process that you use or the setup that you use common or do some musicians say, no, I love to feel the metronome in my wrist because it totally helps me? Yeah, I think that every musician is different. Um, I had a conversation not so long ago with Mickey Hart from Grateful Dead, and and he was exploring and experimenting with a, I can't remember what it's called now, but a a device that helped him feel, I think, the lower sounds or or beats through um, a certain part of his body. Mm -hmm. And and he was really, really happy with that, and he found it very, very helpful. And that's absolutely fine. So there isn't a, a right or wrong in these situations, a, a, a good or a bad or, or anything like that. It's simply, um, you know, we're all, have, we all have our unique musical journeys. My situation is unique to a lot of other people because of my healing situation. And even if you were to talk to a lot of deaf people, they would also have very different, you know, experiences and things that they might want to engage with. So we're all completely different. And it also depends on the type of music that you're dealing with, the type of instrument that you play. And I mean, I'm a percussion player. So, you know, one minute I'm playing a handheld instrument. The next thing I'm playing a great big marimba or something that's nine foot long. Or the next minute I'm, you know, my body is up in the air playing tubular bells. Or the next minute it's it's little castanets. So the frequency 
sequences and the sense of touch and the durations, the attacks, the mm. dynamics are all so varied within all of those instruments. Yeah. It's interesting that you're, you're talking about musicians who, if they're primarily using sound to interact with music, it might be easier for them to interpret the sense of touch as a layer of metadata. It's like two separate things for them. So the, the click track in vibration doesn't interfere with their experience of the sound, whereas for you, it's all interwoven. And so you, you, don't, yes. you, don't, yeah, you don't perceive it as metadata. It's just part of the signal and it's not part of the signal that you want to be engaged with. So I, that's a very interesting insight. Yeah, it, exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's a living thing, you see. And when we perform music or engage with music, you know, ultimately we're engaging with sound and then we're trying to mold that into an emotional story, a sound story that, that then creates music. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's always going to change. So even if you played a piece a hundred times, it's it's, you know, if you recorded how you played it years ago to how you deal with it now, it's it's really quite different. And 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 that's one of the reasons why I never engage in any of the past recordings I've made, because it's literally a frozen moment in time. Mm. You've almost got to make a decision. And so, you know, when conductors say, can I have a recording of you playing such and such a piece that we might be playing together? You know, I normally say, well, no, I don't really want to give it to you. But if you really, really want it, fair enough. But please don't think that's the interpretation that's going to happen when we meet at 7.30 on the 23rd of October, you know, 2023 or something. Yeah. And I think that's what I find interesting. One of the things I find interesting in being a musician is that you play a piece of music and then it's almost as though, you know, you're painting on glass or something, and then you just simply wipe it off, and it's gone. You know, it's gone until the next time, and then you draw that same picture again as to how you're feeling and how things are, what the acoustics are like, what the audience is like, yeah. what the instruments are like, you know, all sorts of things like that. Yeah, and that's why we all miss live music, is that magic that you just can't get from recordings. It's I really can't wait to, to be able to go back to live mm. concerts again and, and see that it is a totally different experience being there with musicians in the moment. So. It is. All right, so audio visibility. So there's this project called Audio Visibility that you've been involved with. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Audio Visibility is actually an organization who approached me to collaborate with a para-Olympian, Laurentia Tan. Now, Laurentia is really interesting because she is a dressage uh, Olympian. The, the organization Audio Visibility is extraordinary because basically they want to open up the possibilities of deaf people and, and uh, sight-impaired people, but mainly deaf people, to music and to sound and making it as accessible as possible, so to find as many entry points as possible. Mm. And if that is using things like sub-packs or other technology or visual aids or whatever it may be, then that is the entry point. And, uh, and so it's an amazing organization. And I've known the lady who, who runs the organization, Ruth Montgomery, for a long time. And Ruth is hearing impaired and a wonderful musician. She plays the flute and she's done an awful lot for education and uh, making sure that young deaf people have access to music and the creative arts. So 
this was really the, the initial step. And so I was intrigued as to what this might be all about with Laurentia. And so Laurentia, over her past few competitions, the world competitions, Olympics and so on, and many of the major competitions that she's been involved with as a dressage athlete, um, she worked closely with a composer called Tom Hunt. And Tom is a dressage music specialist. He does other things as well, obviously, but he absolutely knows how to write specifically for this type of circumstance. And however, what was happening was that Laurentia, who is deaf, she also has cerebral palsy, she was finding it quite difficult to pick up the very beginning of the piece of music that she might have had in order to compete with or to use in her competitions. And so by the time that she had registered the sound, immediately it was slightly too late. Mm. And so in sporting arenas, you know, an nth of a percent or an nth of a mark or whatever it is, is an awful lot, you know. And uh, and so she basically wondered if uh, she could explore the idea of wearing a sub pack. Mm-hmm. And she wanted the music to be much more percussive as well, hence why I was brought in. So I worked with Tom and the the composer and uh, with Laurentia and with Ruth from Audio Visibility. And it was absolutely fascinating because we got to know really where Laurentia best felt the sound through her body. So just because I might feel a sound through my feet or my legs or my neck or chest or whatever, that doesn't mean to say that let's say, Laurentia might feel it in the same place. She might feel it in a slightly different place. Mm. The point is, is that she would be on a horse, you know, and already she would be moving and manipulating so many other parts of her body in order to guide and direct the horse. So it isn't just a case of, oh, well, just feel the sound. There are so many other things that she has to negotiate Mm -hmm. as she's kind of listening and, and and using the music as another layer of the competition. Yeah. And so basically she had to go through the committee, you know, the, the Olympic committee layers. I mean, I don't know the process, obviously, but um, there's a lot of layers that she had to go through to make sure that she would be allowed to wear the vest so that it didn't give her an extra advantage over the other athletes and so on. Mm-hmm. And anyway, they gave the go ahead for this to happen, which was great. Tom wrote a a new score that um, involved much more percussive instruments. And so this particular piece of music that uh, we've just recorded, uh, Laurentia will use for the Tokyo Olympics, which will be coming up in uh, a few weeks' time as far as her part of the competition. Mm -hmm. So we're obviously keeping a close eye on, on, you know, what's going to happen there. Did you or she evaluate other solutions besides Subpack? Like, is there a story behind how Subpack was selected for this? Um, I think that all um, visibility had connections with Subpack, is my understanding. And I think that this was something that Laurentia had explored and felt that it could fit with the kind of uniform she has to wear as as a dressage 
uh, athlete, because mm-hmm. uh, that has to be taken into consideration, an aspect that could cover enough of her body whilst she's moving on the horse. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, Laurentia with cerebral palsy, as well as her deafness, you know, has other physical challenges that need to be taken into consideration. And so it was finding something that she could really relate to that would make sense for her. And it's the sort of thing that only the person can decide what is right. But I believe that it was through a connection uh, with mm. audio visibility. And of course, the subpack people have been absolutely tremendous and have really been incredibly helpful and really valued this kind of unique collaboration with Laurentia. That's really interesting. So is the sound that the audience hears exactly the same signal that's going to the subpack? Do you happen to know, or is what's being sent to the subpack any different in any way for like harder envelopes and attacks or something like that? I'm not entirely sure, but it's my understanding that Laurentia would have the sound that is suitable for her and the horse. So okay. she has had to make sure and rehearse with the subpack on so that there's no vibration that comes through the subpack that disrupts the horse yeah. or makes the horse uncomfortable or whatever. And so that's really quite interesting. So I would imagine, although not being completely sure, I'd imagine that it would be geared up specifically for Laurentia and her horse, mm. Sherlock. But meanwhile, the audience would be hearing the piece of music as a normal piece yeah. of music, as it were. What, what percussive instruments did you use? Well, we had marimba. We had uh, Japanese taiko type drums, um, an array of those. And then the other orchestrated instruments, such as strings and mainly strings, really, keyboards, is sort of much more percussively played in a way. And so we'll be giving an actual live performance of this, along with some other dressage pieces in Birmingham in England in September. And uh, and we'll use video footage of Laurentia and another dressage athlete from the US. And so people will be able to see that this music can be performed live Mm -hmm. as well. And I mean, it's Laurentia's dream to have live musicians in competition, can you believe? <laughs> yeah. Which would be really quite fascinating. Who knows, you know, I would be most intrigued to see how that might come about. And I'd love to be there if that indeed happened or if it was allowed to happen. And then how, really how the the acts and the horses and so on would react to that type of type of thing. Yeah, that would be really cool. <laughs> So, and Laurentia is representing, is it Singapore? Yes, she is. Yes. Yes, I, yes, absolutely. She actually went to school in this country, a school called Mary Hare Mm. School for the Deaf in England, but she is representing Singapore. She trains a lot in Germany. Uh, That's where her horse or horse is. I think she has more than the one. So, yes, I mean, she's a lady of the world. She's absolutely brilliant. She's such a nice person. I can't tell you. She is just such fun to be with. She really is. But she's just so, as you would expect from a a high-level athlete, just incredibly 
focused and detailed and mm. and you know really really wanting this to make a difference so we'll we'll see how we go yeah we wish her luck I, by the time this airs it'll probably be happening live yeah. so we we wish her luck that's great absolutely <laughs> so are there any other projects that you want to highlight well, goodness me, um, talking about the Olympics, we'll be performing at Wembley Stadium as a homecoming for our Paralympians mm. in September. And so that will be quite exciting. And it'll be a real celebration of what they have all achieved during their time in Tokyo. Also, really, to extend our congratulations to Tokyo for really putting on an amazing game so far mm. uh, under the extraordinary circumstances that we're in. And then I have a couple of concerts with, wait for it, with the World Doctors Orchestra. And uh, this is an amazing group of people who come together once a year. And uh, we were meant to perform together last year. All medics from around the world, quite literally around the world. And so this year the concerts will be in the UK. I'm in the middle of writing a, a very elementary book specifically for the glockenspiel. And uh, I've never done such a thing before, and so I'm having enjoyment doing that. And then I will start my role as Chancellor of the Robert Gordon University in Aberdeen in Scotland from September. That will take quite a bit of time and, and so on. So that's a new landscape for me. Mm-hmm. And then we carry on really with the concerts, mainly in the UK, although we're hoping to, to get to... Um, Taiwan at the end of the year for a performance, but we'll just have to see how the situation is. But we've kept all of the performances for the remainder of this year in the UK for obvious reasons. And then we might get back up and running overseas perhaps next year. So we'll see how we go. And then I'm president of Help Musicians, which is an incredible organization in the UK that basically, since COVID started, has been absolutely inundated with supporting musicians. They basically support musicians right from the age of 16, 17, you know, once they study music, all the way through to their last moments. So it's a massive demographic of all different musical Form, styles, you name it. So any musician of, of any sort. And uh, and that has been an absolute challenge, really, over the past few months. So there doesn't seem to be much end in sight, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. And even although things are gradually getting, you know, back up and running again, it's, it isn't just like switching on a tap. Um, there's an awful lot that has to be attended to. And Help Musicians is great because they completely understand that to be a creative artist, you need to have, you know, a healthy mind. So well-being is really important. You need to be physically fit and, and, you know, feel okay. And then you need often a lot of support with the business itself. So in a way, this triangle that they focus on is, is really, really important. And I think it's something important to mention because people do feel that, oh, well, the concerts are back up and running, then isn't that great and off you go kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't played for nearly two years, it's really not easy. And it's not just a physical thing of playing your instrument. There's a lot more that goes on than that. Yeah, well, that's great. Excellent. Well, I know that you have a podcast. Do you want to plug that and any other online projects that you want to direct people to? Oh, goodness. Well, the, the podcast, the aim of the podcast was to try to chat with as many diverse people as possible. So mm-hmm. not only musicians, but 
comedians, news readers, oh goodness me, writers, personalities, whatever, all sorts of people. Yeah. And to use listening as the thread, as a kind of tentative thread through the, the, the conversation. And, and it's been really interesting for me because, of course, I'm usually used to being asked the questions. And so for me to suddenly ask the questions was like, oh, heavens above, you know, I, I find that really, really difficult. So I admire people like yourself very much indeed. <laughs> but yes, it... it um, it did not come naturally, and I still don't feel it's it's natural. But you know, I just find it fascinating to push yourself a little bit, and and you know, feel it a tad uncomfortable, and and explore the situation. And but I found it fascinating meeting these people, albeit virtually, yeah. and appreciated the time that they've given. Yeah. So uh, so yes, but that's that's all happening, and they can all be found really. Um, if you just type in, you know, Evelyn Benny podcast, they can also be found on my website, www.evelyn.co.uk. So, you know, all of those things can be really easily found. There's just always a lot to do somehow, you know, but with the diversity, I think, I think it keeps, keeps me going pretty well. Yeah. It is more work than I thought it would be going in. The way this podcast started for me is I realized that I was having a lot of interesting zoom conversations with people. And I thought, why don't we just record these and put them out? Because it would be no effort. I'm already having the conversation. I might as well just record it, get the person's permission and publish it. And we both benefit from that. Right. That was the idea, low effort. And uh, it turned out to be a lot more than that, but it's so worth it because like you said, being responsible to ask good questions and push yourself to find interesting people and topics, it's made me grow a lot and it's been well worth the effort, even though it is quite a bit of work. So (laughs) that's why I keep going too. Anything else you want to mention before we close? Oh, um, I'll probably think of everything once we we say cheerio, the the usual thing that happens. But um, I think I think we're okay. I think we've done pretty well. All right. Well, thank you, Evelyn. I appreciate your time, and I'm really looking forward to watching the Olympics. And uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Illy MC. Copyright 2021.